Once upon a time, vinyl albums were the preeminent format in which music was sold, reaching a peak of over 1 billion units in 1981. Then the bottom dropped out of the vinyl market, and album sales declined. In 1993, they reached a low point of just 300,000 units sold. But since that low, album sales in the U.S. have steadily increased each year, with 9.2 million albums sold in 2014, according to Nielsen SoundScan. So what happened to vinyl sales? And what makes vinyl different from all the other ways that people can listen to music? Can I have a taste of your ice cream? I'm Portia Sabin. On this episode of The Future of What, we're going to talk about the extremely popular Record Store Day. Michael Kurtz helped found the event, and he describes a time when vinyl was dead and buried, literally. When I was in London, the music industry over there was so excited about CD was what it came. They actually took the lathes and the manufacturing units for vinyl and used them as filler in the foundations of their buildings for the new buildings they were putting up. Then we'll talk with Darius Van Arman of Secretly Group about how the new global street date is affecting retail sales. But first, let's go to an office about eight miles south of Portland. It's an industrial warehouse block, and through the front windows of this office, you can see an old jukebox, a coffee maker, and some mismatched chairs around a square table. From the outside, it doesn't look like much of anything goes on here. But on the inside, it's a music first for the Northwest. So let's go in. Hi, hello. Welcome to Cascade Record Pressing. That's Amy Dragon, one of the people who's helped launch Cascade Record Pressing. It's the newest vinyl record press in the U.S. and the only one in the Northwest. In the warehouse, there are huge industrial fans, boilers, and other heating and cooling equipment. All right, so we're in the utility room right here. This houses our, our air system. That's Mark Rainey. He's the chief operating officer of Cascade Record Pressing. So yeah, by the time they come off, you start with a temperature of around 275, 300 for the, preparing the material. And by the time they land here, uh, surface temp is about 110. And that's just, yeah, it's, it's cooled with uh, just ambient water. Mark walks over to a row of big cardboard boxes on the side of the warehouse. He puts his hand in what looks like a box of black pebbles. So yeah, that is 100% virgin vinyl. And what, what that statement means as far as virgin, it, it, is, it is virgin to the record pressing process. As Mark reaches his hand into the bag, he says you can tell it's virgin vinyl because the skin on his hand didn't turn black. Of course, metaphorically, Mark has a lot of skin in this game. After founding the punk label TKO Records and operating a successful music store in Orange County, he moved up to the Portland area to start making vinyl records. He's helping to build a plant that he says focuses on quality, not quantity. Like in the listening room, there's a turntable, speakers, and a microscope. The microscope is to catch any problems before the records are pressed. So when we put a record on, we are looking for lead-in, basically. So we want to put the put the needle down, drop the needle, and make sure that that it's tracking correctly as it goes into the grooves. And at that point, we're listening for surface noise. Is there excessive amounts of you know, kind of scratching or hissing or too many cracks or pops. If we're hearing that, we um, have a microscope here that will pull over onto the track and try to visually inspect the grooves and see, is it just dust? Is it something that might have happened during pressing? Is it something maybe that happened during plating or cutting? Just try to ascertain what the issue is. The other part of that is, is it happening on every record? So we're, you know, we're checking the audio on multiple records, not just one, and seeing is it, a, is it an anomaly that just happened with a few, or do we have to go back and, and try to make an adjustment that's a bit of greater scale. So that is Mississippi Records and it's various artists, but the release is called Trouble Waters. 
Like Mark, Amy is also coming to Cascade from a successful career. She masters records at Telegraph Audio in Portland. They've mastered records for Drag City, New Moss, and Asthmatic Kitty Records. So why did Mark, Amy, and co-owner Adam Gonzalves start Cascade Record Pressing? And how are they making money focusing on quality over quantity? I spoke with them in the office at the pressing plant. My first question for everybody is, what in the heck are you guys doing starting a pressing plant? This is so exciting. That's what we were counting on, <laughs> really. I mean, you know, for, for people kind of outside our circle, yeah, we sound like we're out of our minds. But with Adam and I's background in independent music, it just really made too much sense. You know, I, I've, I've run a label for almost 20 years. I mean, Adam's been an engineer for over a decade. You know, we both identified Portland as ripe for this type of operation with just having a very strong local scene, network of labels, independent bands. I mean, this, this has been a music area since the jump, since Louie Louie. You know, it's, it's kind of nuts that it hadn't happened already. And, uh, you know, to to our knowledge, I mean, there really hasn't been a functioning pressing plant in the Northwest probably since the early 70s and never one in Oregon. So here we are. So these presses that you guys got, you actually got them from a plant in Canada that had gone out of business, correct? When we got the presses, the plant actually hadn't gone out of business yet. Oh, they were still operational, but not with all the presses. Yeah. And they were they were on their way out. So there was a there was a lot of presses. And this was, by the way, the end of a very long trip to find presses. It's not like we opened the phone book and looked for presses and like no found, doubt. And found the Canada guy. Um, <laughs> so after, you know, Mark and I started talking about this in, in December of 2013. Wow. And then there was, you know, 10 months, 11 months. Oh, of, easily. Yeah. Of, of us <clears throat> looking, uh, you know, he and I checking in two or three times a week, following leads all around the world, the Caribbean, Africa, Europe, domestically, obviously. And so, yes, we these presses were purchased uh, from Rip V, which is now a closed plant in Canada. But I do want to make the point that it's not like we just called Rip V on the phone and we're like, we'll take, I don't know, six. And then they, you know, <laughs> and they packed them up in a FedEx box and sent them to us. Like right. it, was, it was a long, it's a lot of work to, to get them. Right. So do you want to tell us a little bit more about how you guys decided that this was really a viable option for you to actually start a pressing plant? in this day and age? Yeah, I mean, it was it was sort of a gradual conclusion that we reached. About seven or eight years ago, I was, you know, working at my label and sort of observing all the changes and the turmoil and just how, it, you know, sort of all the old models got thrown out the window in the music industry. And I actually ended up deciding to kind of pull back, take a couple years off from releasing anything, and we opened a retail store. Mm. So, I, you know, I had a few years of just sort of observing, you know, what our customer was was doing what they were buying and you know when i opened the store you know there i, I got a lot of advice from you know people who've been in the industry for a while and they were all saying oh you've got to stock clothing and all these you know lunch boxes and all this other crap that i wasn't interested in selling and you know by trial and error i found that wasn't the case and that vast majority over 90 percent of the of the sales to the register were for vinyl and I, you know, I saw that over the years that those, the numbers keep increasing, you know, and then there was the whole advent of uh, record store day right? and sort of tracking the trajectory of that as well. And just, you know, what I was able to, as far as the releases, we started putting out again on our label, how we, you know, we went from, you know, doing, doing a lot of vinyl, but also kind of anchored by CDs and sort of CDs sort of paying all the bills and vinyl just being, you know, something we were doing to keep it real and where our hearts were to totally abandoning CDs and becoming a vinyl-only operation, pretty much. You couple that with, you know, just, you know, when I'd be talking to my peers and other people who run labels and just sort of hearing the uh, horror stories of what they were enduring, you know, as the, the demand for new vinyl increased and as, you know, more and more of the domestic plants, especially just getting completely congested and especially for the smaller indies. I mean, just, you know, the, 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 the labels that had been, and the, op- the types of operations that had really kept the vinyl industry alive all through the downturn you know, being kind of shut out because the majors were back, you know, it, just, it seemed like an opportunity. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think the point can be overstated too much. Now that, that vinyl's hot again on a broader scale and Urban Outfitters and Amazon sell a lot of vinyl and you have, you know, there's represses of Fleetwood Mac rumors right? Which does not need to be repressed, right? But you can get, you can get that record at, <laughs> that it, is correct. in any record store 
on the on physically on the planet Earth and yeah. maybe a couple on the moon for a dollar. Yes. And, you know, there's movie soundtracks that are double or triple discs or, you know, all this kind of stuff. And the people, our people, who were sustaining vinyl through the downturn, which frankly are indie rock, metal, punk, hip-hop, and dance music, those are the people who made vinyl and who bought vinyl. Right. Rain or shine. Very true. For Through my lifetime. We were there. Yeah. They're all getting squeezed out because it's it's more appealing to, you know, take an order for 30,000 units than it is to take an order for 1,000 units. Okay, so let's say Warner, whoever owns Fleetwood Mac, mm-hmm. comes to you guys and says, listen, I just, we love you guys. You have to put out this, you have to run this 50,000 copies of Rumors or whatever. What would you say? Well, first of all, Stevie Nicks would actually have to come. Yeah. That would be, that would be <laughs> con- con- totally contingent to make the deal. But uh, nothing to that scale, but we have had, because of Mark's, history in the music industry and his history with the label, we've had interest from larger parties. And, you know, so far, it's kind of been a thanks but no thanks situation. Again, going back to the people that we're trying to serve. Thankfully, there are there are plenty of independent artists and labels who need records made. And part of what got us in this, and by us, I mean the music industry and vinyl consumers and music lovers, part of what got, got us in this situation where at some plants a record takes six or eight months to make is you know this just saying yes to whatever comes in the door like oh yeah like uh the great gatsby soundtrack double lp like we need a hundred thousand copies of that like yeah man let me catch that check so we're our attitude about what releases we're going to accept for record store days is part of that you know we don't like telling people no and i'm not going to put a hard line in the sand and say you know we will unilaterally reject this type of job because every job is different but there's there's people out there who are interested in helping and we want to help them and that's, I think, why, aside from being a good friend of Mark's and wanting to help, that's where I wanted to be useful and why I kind of got involved. Because in Amy and I's capacity, Amy, in, in addition to being the assistant plan manager, is also my assistant at Telegraph Mastering. She's, she's an engineer as well. We, you, you notice all the, the difficulty that clients have, super long wait times, mm-hmm. like not good customer service. I mean, Amy could probably speak a little bit more to it. I think it's daunting for a lot of the people that we talk to, a lot of the independent artists and smaller labels that are just, I think, surprised, some of them still, um, who maybe haven't put out a record in a while, or just daunted at the times that they have to wait and all of the things that can happen to their detriment when they can't get their release out in a timely way. And the poor customer service, as you mentioned, I think that's especially perfect. We did a record store day release for this year and it was a double LP, and several customers contacted us afterwards and said they had two copies of the same album yeah. in the two different sleeves. And the pressing plant that we had worked with said, oh, too bad. Right. That was their response. So, Sorry about that. So that's unfortunately like a kind of a common horror story. Like we, Amy and I had a client last year where like they've shipped records with the wrong labels on them they've given clients the wrong record oh my god you know you I've open up it's too. like your your correct jacket and you take it out you're like this is another band's record yes. like how did that <laughs> happen and and frankly you have precisely zero leverage yeah there's uh, nothing you can do there's nothing that you can do if right. you if you have a relationship with someone at the plant and they are nice to you or maybe take pity on you then congratulations you won but getting you know, from what we were being told, like getting somebody on the phone, you know, who gives a shit is harder and harder and harder. Right. And to clarify, those of us, as you said, the labels and the artists that have been sustaining the vinyl resurgence in the last 10 years or so, we press 1,000, 2,000 copies. Yeah. You can't compete when Sony comes in with 30,000, 50,000 copies of something. I mean, how can you expect to be paid attention to? Well, I don't think it's unreasonable to expect to be paid attention to if you're if you're if you're well, neither do I. But I'm saying yeah. that would be their rationale. One yeah. would assume. I mean, there's uh, last summer there was a, a a plant that we were sending lacquers to, and they you know they were getting back to our clients and saying, oh well, we just accepted the job for the the Kiss reissue catalog. They're repressing every Kiss record. The whole catalog. Yeah, and so they're just like so you know so their 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 wait time. I mean, they straight up told the client on the phone. They're like. Yeah, you're not really going to be able to get your record here, mate. Man, I mean, you know. Yeah, how about just go somewhere else? Kind of, yeah. Wow. And so so we made that other place. I mean, and we're really hoping to, or planning on being informed by our experience 
through this whole process and, and sort of, you know, we know how we don't, we as customers didn't like being treated as plants. So we're kind of taking a, a cue from that as far as how we're going to interact with the people we're running jobs for. That's very exciting. Um, Have you found, Amy, especially in dealing with people, with customers so far, are mm-hmm. people just so excited? People are so grateful and so excited. Honestly, just that I picked the phone up and I'll spend time talking to them or just customers that have come by for various reasons and Mark will spend time talking with them about all sorts of things from how to work their label and or um, if it's a customer who's kind of new with this, just taking time to explain how this all works mm-hmm. and how they can help us get their record out the door faster because it's it's really a bit of a relationship that there's you know we can we can press the vinyl but there's lots of other parts in motion that we don't have control over so helping them understand that so that it's a little bit of a two-way street I think they're really just thankful and it's fun it's exciting mm-hmm. it's exciting for me I yeah. mean I'm like beyond excited when I heard you guys were opening I just we all had a little dance party in the office <laughs> it was it was really a big deal because really the last several years of well when I took over the record label my husband had officially quit pressing vinyl so there there were multiple albums that we never pressed on vinyl because at that time you know mid 2000s it wasn't selling the way that you know CDs were selling so I, I started to sort of slowly get into the pressing after the first few years because I was like, wait a second, people are buying this and, you know, it's coming back and, and all this stuff. And now, I mean, we can't imagine doing a release not on vinyl. We even just pressed two comedy albums on vinyl, which sounds crazy, but they're totally selling. I mean, people are buying them, which is funny because we actually had one comedian ask us, now, how big is a record? Do I need a special bag to carry it in? I mean, we were like, have you been on Earth? Like, right. have you, hello. <laughs> it was odd. But, you know, whatever. This is great. We're introducing a whole new group of people to, you know, the wonders of vinyl. So I'm sure people are really excited. So does that mean that you guys are booked out right now pretty solidly? I mean, how's that going? I feel like we're doing a pretty good job at managing it. We're about current capacity about 16 weeks out, but you know, that, that stands to decrease as, uh, as we bring additional presses online. And, and, you know, we're just really from the gate, just trying to have an open, honest conversation with the people that call here. They'll say, well, what's your turnaround time? Or when can you get it by? And I go, well, let's, let's look at this from a different angle. What are your deadlines? Right. Like, what exactly are you trying to accomplish? What do you need? You know, they, maybe they give us a date and we go, okay, well, how much flex is there in that? Let's, let's see if there's a way that we can work this together. Maybe it means a little bit more work on your end. Maybe it means us doing things a little differently than we might normally. But um, if there's a way to figure this out, yeah, let's, we will accept this job and let's do it. And if we can't, you know, we tell them up front. Rather than, you know, we don't want to start off, especially, you know, with, well, all, our, all our customers are new. But with a new, with a new customer, you don't want to start the relationship off by lying to them or misleading them. I mean, that's, that's bananas. It's not yeah. going to work. And you know, for every, I mean, so much of the process of vinyl straight through from, from cutting all the way to delivery is like the key to this is expectation management. And thankfully, there are a lot of very young people who are very enthusiastic about vinyl. That enthusiasm is real. And you don't want to jump down on that at all, but you do want to have a frank conversation with them about this is how long this is going to take. Do you have, are you guys you know, booking a record release show or a tour. Okay, well, Amy would be better to talk to you about this, but it's like, here's how we should line that print up to make sure that it gets here when the records are being pressed so that the records aren't pressed and sitting for two weeks while we're waiting for your jackets to show up. And that if you've never done that before, that's not something that you would know. See, I'm fascinated by that because mm-hmm. that suggests that you guys are having an educational component to this, which also implies that you have new people doing this, which to me is blowing my mind that people are every day getting into the record business. You're like, which part of, you know, this business has been collapsing do you guys not get? And yet, here we are, right? It's, gr- I mean, certain areas are really growing. They really are. And I've been impressed by how many independent artists have called and or walked in here that have never done this before. And are willing to take it on and learn and figure out what's involved in getting a lacquer cut and how to work with an engineer and the fact that we don't do electroplating here and that happens elsewhere and all of the little steps involved in getting their print here and what's involved in that and how they can help us out and what we can do to help them get things done in a way so that when they're ready to go, we have all their parts and pieces here, we could press their run and, and get it out the door for them. 
That's so cool. Yeah. Mark, let's go back to something you said. You said that you're going to be bringing more presses online. How many presses do you have working right now? Uh, two right now. Two, but you yeah. own? Six. Six. Yeah. So, and what's your time frame for rolling those out? Um, we're, we're hoping to have the whole line up by uh, the end of summer. Cool. So that's what we're shooting oh, wow. For. Yeah. That's going to be pretty fun. So, yeah, they're actually, the, the other four machines are very far along in the refurbishing process. Like, we took, we sort of advanced them all together to a point. And then uh, when it became time to hook some of them up, we brought a couple of them home. Because it made more sense to us to have a complete setup and dial it in and have it functioning properly and then replicate that as opposed to sort of forcing through six sort of marginally well-running machines and then having to fight them all simultaneously. I mean, that just seemed like a, like a nightmare. Yeah, you know, so, good uh, idea. Yeah, we would just want to say, let's get, you know, let's get some results. Let's be happy with this, and then let's let's do it again, and again, and again, and maybe along the you know maybe along the way we find little improvements that we can you know and and you know because all all the machines are in slightly different conditions, they all have their different personalities and quirks, and we're having to address that. So then it's not just the same; it's not Groundhog Day with the same scenario over and over again. But yeah, that's where we are with that. You guys um, are so measured and organized. I'm so impressed. Um, Adam, I want to go back to something you told me because I think people are really interested in vinyl, where vinyl comes from okay. and how it's manufactured. And I think people, you know, people worry like, oh, vinyl is terrible for the environment. But you were telling me that what vinyl is actually made out of is recycled. Yeah, Twitter is way worse for the environment than vinyl. <laughs> I believe that to be true. Yeah, not just the human environment. I mean, if you took, if you take like all the electricity that's needed to like run tweets, like vinyl is a cricket fart compared to that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it's the raw polycarbonate compound. There, There is some, you know, actual petroleum product in there, but it's, a, lot, a lot of it's recycled tires. It's mostly recycled tires. And and when you take, uh, we were talking about the pieces of, of the record that get trimmed off at the end to make mm-hmm. a smooth edge on the record. That's called flash. So all of the flash is recycled and mixed back in with virgin compound to make the record. And then there's also all of the records that fail QC. And we, we haven't taken a trip to the QC room yet, but but that's a critical piece of, of any pressing operation. And so all the records that fail QC, are the center hole is punched out and they're reground as well. Mm. So it's a largely recycled product. Yeah, that's good to know. But you did say something, there's something called virgin vinyl. Yes. What is that? Well, the the little polycarbonate compounds, the thing that a record is kind of made out of, look like these little beads. They look like lentils. And so if it's if you just get the polycarbonate compound to make records and you just make a record out of it, just those, that's called virgin vinyl. So it's a clean pressing with absolutely no regrind, no recycled part of it. And that's something that you will see, you know, I have a, a Dead Boys repress of Young Lad and Snotty. And so it's, you know, it was like the 180 gram deluxe virgin vinyl reissue. And I, I'm pretty sure I paid like five bucks more than I need to do <laughs> for that. Uh, and it's, uh, that's something that's sold as, you know, as, as part of a, kind of a marketing strategy. Gotcha. Uh, but it's, as we were chatting earlier, it's, it's actually kind of better to have a little bit of the regrind in there because it makes for a quieter record. That's so interesting. So the sound quality actually improves. Yeah, the noise floor goes down. You get wow. less uh, less hiss, less noise. You would have to ask a chemist why having something already heated up and then reground plastic mixed in with pure plastic makes it quieter. I don't know why that is, but it, it's a real thing. Interesting. Why do refried beans taste better? You know, it's one of those, just one of those questions. <laughs> just do. Don't it's probably it. the same chemical don't reason. Don't question the recipe. Just go with just it. Just go with know? it. Exactly. So we've been speaking to Adam Gonzalez. Amy Dragon, and Mark Rainey of Cascade Record Pressing. Thanks so much, you guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thanks for coming. I'm Portia Sabin. In a moment, we talk about Record Store Day with one of the people who founded it. Stay with us. Record Store Day was started in 2007 and takes place on the third Saturday of April every year. The event was a huge success right out of the box and has grown every year, with 532,000 albums being sold this year, a 12-year sales high for independent record stores. 
Michael Kurtz is one of the founders of Record Store Day, and he joins us from New York. Michael, welcome to the future of what? Hi, Portia. Glad to be here. So half a million albums sold in one day. That is a really big deal. I think it is, especially for a person like myself who realizes that a quarter of those were seven-inch vinyl singles, and no one in the right mind would have thought that would have been possible. (laughs) So can you explain to our listeners what led you and your partners to create Record Store Day? Sure, but uh, desperation um, (laughs) is probably the most accurate word to describe it. About eight years ago, a guy runs a record store in Baltimore called uh, The Sound Garden, his name is Brian, you know, called me up and he said, basically, record stores are irrelevant. And I said, what do you mean? You know, I'm trying to be the cheerleader for independent record stores. He goes, no, just face it, we're irrelevant. No girls shop in our store anymore. I have no female employees. My average age has gone from, of an employee from 25 to 50. No one cares about getting promos to listen to anymore. It used to be everybody fought over them to see who would get it. You know, now nobody cares because it's already on out digitally before it comes, so it's like a big yawn. Because your job is to do something about it. And uh, then I set about brainstorming to figure that out with my partners. And you created Record Store Day, which basically is an opportunity once a year for labels and artists to put out something kind of special on vinyl. It is that, Portia, but it's really more than that. It's it's funny, I'm not going to say this. It's going to sound like I'm name-dropping, but uh, what the hell? I'll, I'll do it anyway. Last <laughs> night, I was hanging out with Keith Richards. Whoa. And- <laughs> it was a playback for his his new album that's coming out. A really cool record. But anyway, I got to, to speak to him for a few minutes and really, you know, I was saying to him, well, who's in your band? Is it Steve Jordan? He's like, yeah. He goes, you know, it's my, my regular guys. They're like my family. It's my community. You know, that's everything. And I thought to myself, as he's saying that, that's what Record Store Day is. Anytime you create an excuse for people to gather and it's a good excuse, you know, whether it's a party or a record store day, it there's another thing that just sort of happens. It's like this level of excitement and it's like going to a concert or something. On the business side, yes, it's all about that vinyl things. But from a perception side, it's way more than that. It, I mean, these record stores have, you know, parties inside their stores. They have bands perform. They have, they give, they create special things. They'll, They'll like um, invite the local animal shelter to come out to, to adopt a do- uh, you know a kitten or a puppy or something, and it's all these different things and they all collide at one time. And this happens internationally, by the way. It isn't just a U.S. phenomenon, but it's way beyond just the business side of things, which is you know which is really important. And it's why we're you know record stores are opening about one average a week, whereas eight years ago we were closing probably five a week. So it's, uh, it, you know, it's a lot of things. Well, we were just talking uh, in an earlier segment to Mark Rainey, who runs TKO Records in Orange County, and he also runs a record store. And he was talking about how last year the biggest selling item in his store on Record Store Day was a 7-inch by One Direction. And all <laughs> day long, I know, which is like hilarious to think of, but all day long he said 12-year-old girls were coming into this, his record store. And he was yeah. like, this might be the first time they've ever been in a record store. No, it's that, you know, that idea for doing One Direction came from a Canadian record store called Sunrise. The guy's like, you know, why aren't we doing more things for teens? And my response was because I'd gone to labels, but, you know, like Disney, I'd gone to see if we could do a couple things there. But they were a little hesitant to do it. But Columbia actually listened to us and said, OK, we'll take it to the band. The band was really into it, made this really hilarious picture disc that looked like they were like 70s you know hair metal band so they had a sense of humor about it and it just really you know they caught the spirit of the event and made it fun and 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 yes that we had all these teenagers come in and i guess i should drop this statistic you know we've gone from an average age of 50 to a record for a record store customer down the average age now is about 20 wow yeah because and, and the majority of vinyl is being bought by teen girls Wow. Yeah. That's a really great thing to know because, you know, every super fan and record store nerd that I know gets the list of Record Store Day releases in advance and then plans out what they're going to buy. So it's good to know that this event has actually grown to the point where it's not just super serving that customer, which is great. I mean, I'm happy that all of my record nerd friends are into (laughs) this, but it's cool to know that we're bringing new people. It's bringing new people to the table. 
It is. It's just changed everything, and you can see it even from the, the layout in stores and you know what they carry, like the, the Soundgarden, for example. Here it is eight years later. His store is unrecognizable from what it was when we first had the discussion where he pretty much said that, you know, that I was a member of the ball spot and pony crowd and that I was <laughs> got a touch and something needed to be done about it. But seriously, you know, he the store now is 50 percent vinyl. He just added on a whole nother, I think it's around a couple thousand square feet to his store and it's all vinyl and turntables. And, and you know, he's the turntable business has exploded. You know, we have talked had quite a few conversations with different manufacturers about how they can't even fill their back orders at this point. It's, it's, it's insane. Earlier in this segment, we talked to the people who have started the new pressing plant out here in Portland, Cascade Record Pressing. Yeah. And that's so exciting to us because, of course, to have a new pressing plant is this, you know, big, big deal because of exactly what you're just saying. We've had such backlogs where people, yeah. you know, you want to press a record, you want to put it out in November, and people are like, well, you'll have to start in, you know, January. <laughs> no, it's, 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 yeah, it was really depressing. And Records where they took a lot of heat for that in the last year or so. People blamed us. They were like, oh, if it wasn't for you, people would be able to fill their orders. And, you know, the truth is it's always taken a long time because vinyl is a whole different thing. You know, you've got the cardboard sleeves. You've got to glue it together. You've got to, like... The way it's manufactured, you have to let the vinyl cool before it slid into the to the sleeves. And there's all this stuff. And then if you do colored vinyl, that slows it down even further. If you do picture discs, that slows it down even further. There's all these things that are happening. But, of course, we're at the vanguard of that because we kind of made it happen. But, uh, yeah, I, I, for me, I have to pinch myself. I was uh, in during conversations because, like, for example, I had a meeting with the folks who run Q Prime really well-known management company. They manage Muse and Dawes and Silverstone Pickups and Metallica, a bunch of bands. Anyway, they're telling me that they just bought two brand-new manufacturing units from Palace in Europe, two brand-new ones. And that's the first I've heard of them because most of them have been refurbished. And I said, God, doesn't that make you nervous? They said, no, because we're going to manufacture our own records because we're tired of waiting in line you know, with everybody else. So now we're at the front of the line and we will take over the spillover from everybody else's orders that can't get filled. And and I was just listening to him going like, wow, the world sure has changed. It's yeah, crazy. it really has changed. And it's so funny because I was doing research for this piece and I saw that, you know, the, the height of vinyl, I mean, like once upon a time in America, it was all vinyl. You know, that's how people put out records. And it was a height of something like 1.1 billion vinyl albums sold in the year 1981 and then down to 300,000 sold in 1993. Yeah. So a crash like that really took out a lot of the players because a lot of people who own pressing plants were like, forget it, I'm out. You know, this format is done. Goodbye. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. then to the investment that it takes to start a pressing plant is huge. Well, you know, for conversation's sake, I should throw this out there. You know, when I when I made my travels around the world to get record store day off the ground and like Japan and France and Amsterdam and London, it sounds really romantic, doesn't it? But <laughs> actually, it, it really wasn't. It was a gruel, grueling experience, you know, being on planes and being misunderstood in conversations. But seriously, like when I was in London, when the very first, they were the first country to come on board, the UK, and they were explaining to me that the the music industry over there was so excited about CD was what it came. They actually took the lathes and the manufacturing units for vinyl and used them as filler in the uh, foundations of their buildings for the new buildings they were putting up. And it, that's how confident that they were that that was never coming back. Wow. Yeah. Over. So, of course, they wish they all had that now. But this, you know, this it's so funny that the whole sort of um, tactile part experience of vinyl and records and stuff is it's it's just resurged. It's kind of magical and it's counterintuitive. It's not what I think most people would think where we would be right now. I don't know. I'm, I'm still kind of in awe of it. Yeah. Well, what do you you're like speaking about that? What do you love about vinyl? I love the sound first and foremost, but I do love, you know, I don't have as much free time now because I just have two newborns, uh, they're, you know, two kids. So they, they take up all my time. And in the nursery, I have the, that set up with, with streaming. 
because you know I can put all the nursery songs and different things there, and, and those aren't records that I own. And so I enjoy the streaming aspect there. It's really fun. But when it comes to listening to records, then I'm like, I've got them sitting in my living room. And I'm going, this is a record. This, you know, I pull it out of the sleeve and I'm, I said, now we're going to listen to this record. And I dropped the needle on and just the, the experience is just, you know, amazingly different. Just, it's just a wonderful, warm experience, like watching one of your favorite movies or anything like that. It's, it's just different. And especially if you're going to listen to an album from beginning to end. And I always liked about albums myself was just that everything, because the sleeves are bigger, because the, you know, the inserts are bigger, you can see everything better. You know, it's like I felt like I could read it. You know, you could sit there and listen and read the liner notes. And for some reason, that's just like a really satisfying thing to do. You know, I think that's a big part of it in the, in the artwork. And, and, you know, now that people are getting into all kinds of fun things, you know, with posters and inserts and die cuts. And, you know, the, the creativity that's going into vinyl now is just just mind-boggling you know records that play from the back to the front or depending <laughs> you drop the record i mean the needle on the album you hear a different song and I, just fun stuff the hologram things that people are doing i saw one for rush recently uh they did a one where if you shine the light on the dead wax part of it a hologram forms of the little you know whatever that is uh, what is that a uh, octagon or i forget what it, i'm not a huge rush fan but the the little symbol they have i don't know if it's a hexagram or Oh so yeah, God. I think it's a hexagram, and it floats in the air above the record. It's just, <laughs> it's just so much fun. I mean, God, yeah. everything should be this fun. It's true. There's a guy out here in Portland who does live lathe cuts. Yeah. Like you can get him to come to your party. Wow. <laughs> like, do wow. a live lathe cut. That's it's so pretty cool. amazing. Yeah, and I think that's part of it. You touch on like you know the local bands and stuff now have something that. You know, they can press and, and, and for their fans and stuff. It takes it back to the 80s. Like when I first started, you know, I when when REM put out their first 7-inch on Hibtone Records, it was clearly, you know, the sleeve was made on a Xerox machine. And, you know, the 7-inch was you know, Radio Free Europe, which is a phenomenal song. And Sitting Still was on the B-side. But it was such a great experience. And, you know, now I see young bands doing that again. And it's, and it's really cool. And it's, I don't think it's done for like a... You know, like they're trying to be something they're not or something. It's they're doing it because in this moment, it actually makes sense. I totally agree. Well, on that note, Michael Kurtz is a founder of Record Store Day. Michael, thank you so much for joining us on The Future of What? Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Keep playing those records. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye. If you missed any of this program and you want to go back and listen, you can find us at killrockstars.com slash the future of what. Or you can download our podcast from the iTunes store. The future of what continues in just a moment. Don't go anywhere.
I'm Portia Sabin, and this is The Future of What, a show about the recording industry. Today, we're focusing on everything vinyl records. We're going to turn now to Darius Van Arman, co-owner of Secretly Group. Darius, thanks for joining us on The Future of What. (laughs) Thanks, Portia, for having me. So, Global Street Date has happened. It is a reality. Can you explain for us what that actually means? Sure. So, just July 10th of this year, there are different release dates for music throughout the world. For example, in Germany, things were released on a Friday. In the UK, music albums and, 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 and releases were released on a Monday. In the US, on a Tuesday. There was a different day of the week in Australia as well. And the, the issue with it in the industry was when labels who were releasing records worldwide were putting music out because it was coming out in one territory before another and we're in a digital marketplace now, things leaked. And it also made it, made it harder to, to market through international channels when a release date was. So there was this idea that let's have one global release date that is the common convention for when new record releases are put out into the market and that's what global release date is which there's you know some good things about it and some bad things about it so i read the ifpi's report about i guess it was just their annual report and they quoted a uk retailer as saying new music should hit the high street when people hit the high street so of course that implies that you know since in certain countries friday is payday that's when they want albums coming out so people can take their pay packet and go down the local record store and uh, I'm pretending I'm British and uh, <laughs> and purchase the new album. But this has caused some issues, right? Some people are not super happy about this. Well, I think, you know, one, and this is, you know, affects uh, small and medium-sized labels more so maybe and, and this as well. You know, I guess the question is, whether a global marketplace is actually good for local markets. In the United States, for example, the way music retail has evolved, you know, it became a convention that Tuesdays when music was put out into the racks of music stores and, and the independent retail stores in the U.S. really embraced that and they felt like they got you know, two bites out of the apple. They got some music fans who, who came on release date on Tuesday to buy records and then those same music fans, you know, or others, not the same ones, or both, you know, they, they returned on the weekends when they were looking for, for more music and, and they felt like that was a good rhythm for them. And so one concern is from those independent retail stores is that, you know, a global release date where everything's on Friday kind of uh, is going to, you know, on the aggregate reduce foot traffic and, and, and maybe hurt their businesses. And there's other concerns, too, that when you have a global release date, it puts a little bit heavier weight on those artists and those releases that are top of the chart. It, it creates uh, an easier road to there being a global event. You know, Beyonce drops a record, it's a global event. And maybe that hurts diversity. Maybe that means it's harder for local markets to get local artists and local label, label repertoire you know, higher on the charts. You know, it's, it's to be seen. But it is um, something that's, you know, um, whereas there's, there's good from this and that it's maybe simpler to communicate what a release date is throughout the world, there's maybe some costs to local markets and, and how they best want to function and also maybe to the diversity in those local markets and and to what you know shows up on the charts, and and maybe it contributes to bigger releases and and, and bigger recording companies um, getting better placements on the charts. It's to be seen, but that's the concern. There's also a concern about restocking, right? Isn't that something that U.S. retailers had been a little worried about and labels? Well, in the U.S., I think that is a concern because I think you know, correct me if I'm wrong, I think right now video games and DVDs are also stocked or released on Tuesdays. So by moving from a Tuesday release date to a Friday release date, just the music releases, now some stores feel like uh, it's more expensive for them to rack the music. It might contribute, the fear is, to some stores deciding they're not going to carry music 
those stores that carry video games and DVDs. Isn't there also a concern that the album comes out on Friday and then there's a rush on it on Saturday and you go out of the, the store runs out of stock, you can't actually get or order new stock until Monday. So you sort of lose some sales in there because there's no way to restock. Yes. For releases that are not top of the chart releases, you have a retail climate where those stores are maybe only taking a few copies in initially because that's what the market can bear as far as sales in a short period of time for, for the smaller releases. And you're absolutely right that if that sale, if those sales happen quickly on a weekend and you can't restock on a weekend because people and distribution channels aren't working on a weekend, it might affect those smaller releases. And I think that was one of the main concerns that some of the um, independent labels expressed when hearing news about this global release date. So Darius, I've been asking all my guests since we're talking about vinyl today, what do you love about vinyl? <laughs> well, you know, I, the first time I listened to music was, uh, that was recorded that wasn't on a television set or the radio, but was something that I could choose you know, how to play when to play and, and what track to play, and that was vinyl. That was my first format. And so I, I'm nostalgic about it, but I also think that the vinyl experience, you know, um, I don't want to get away from the argument that it sounds better or, or worse. I mean, I, I personally prefer how vinyl sounds, but, you know, I know others like how, how digital sounds, but I, I do love, and I think it's hard to argue with the experience of, putting a record on a table and, and, and actually sort of engaging the medium, picking up the needle, flipping the record over, holding the big record cover in your hand. If you're, if you're going to own a recording that's, that's physically embodied on something, I, 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 I'm hard-pressed to think of a better format than the vinyl format. Darius Van Arman is the co-owner of Secretly Group, and he joined us from his office in Bloomington, Indiana. Thank you so much, Darius, for being on The Future of What? <laughs> Thank you, Portia, for having me. Try 
And that's the future of what? Today's music comes from the Peaches, Deerhoof, and Essential Logic. All the music is used by permission of the artist. If you missed any of this program and you want to go back and listen, you can find us at killrockstars.com slash the future of what. Or you can download our podcast from the iTunes store. The Future of What is produced by Will Watts and John Sepulvedo. Reed Harvey is our engineer. Special thanks to Digital One Studios in Portland, where we record. I'm Portia Sabin. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.